everyone. You're listening to The Katie Helper Show, and I'm your host, Katie Helper. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll qualify for great bonus content, including an alternative podcast feed and rarely seen clips that aired on our live shows. Hello, welcome to the Katie Helper Show. So excited to have you joining. We have a really great show for you today. Now, you can't tell, but I actually am in Hawaii, and I will be bringing you some footage and video where you can see that I'm in Hawaii, but I am visiting a friend I have who lives here, and I have some great, great, great guests who are going to talk about Hawaiian history and also what is happening today in Hawaii and the struggle for independence and sovereignty and also organizing to protect water. So we're really excited. It's going to be great. This is such an important issue, and it's pretty neglected by Western media and U.S. media. So we're really, 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 really excited to be talking about it. Let me quickly introduce our guests, and then I will bring them in. Heilani Sonata Pale is a citizen leader of Kaluahe, Hawaii, a native initiative for self-determination and self-governance. She was born and raised on the island of Oahu, where her ancestors lived from time immemorial. For over 25 years, Heilani has served as an educator who has taught at Hawaiian immersion preschools in Hawaii, high schools, and colleges for over 25 years. Currently, she is an outspoken advocate for the protection of Hawaiian lands, water, ocean resources, and marine life and iwi kapuna. Heilani sits on various community boards and is a member of the Oahu Water Protectors, a group of leaders who are calling for the shutdown of the Red Hill bulk fuel storage facility. We're also going to be joined by Dani Espiritu, who is a Kanaki Maoli educator from Kanahawahe, Oahu, currently living in Waimalu, where her mother's Ohana is from. She is a member of the Oahu Water Protectors and is also dedicated to the restoration of irrigated taro fields and traditional food system. Mikey Inoue is an independent filmmaker and community organizer with Oahu Water Protectors and the Shutdown Rand Hill Mutual Aid Collective. So without any further ado, let us bring in the guests. Hi, all. Aloha. Aloha. Mahalo for having me. Yeah, thanks for having us. Of course. Apologies in advance and apologies for probably the pronunciation errors I already made in the intro. So I wanted to start with you, Heilani, because you're someone who really focuses on the history of Hawaii. And I know you're organizing a peace march for January 17th. Can you tell us about the history and specifically about the annexation of Hawaii and the overthrow of the Hawaiian government? Yes. So I'm just going to give you a really short overview. So Kanaka Maoli, our people believe we're born from this land. Our genealogical connections are to every living thing here in Hawaii. We've been here for over 2,000 years. We entered the the Pacific 10,000 years ago. We were great voyaging peoples. And in 1778, Captain Cook arrived, uh, first Westerner, came to our shores, brought with him disease that decimated our population. Capitalism followed and Christianity. Colonization wreaked havoc and destruction upon our people to a point where we experienced a population collapse. We were, of course, sucked into the whole capitalist imperialism agenda. 
these huge Western countries. And by 1893, there were powerful businessmen from America mainly that wanted more, basically. By 1893, our population was still on the decline, but we still had our independence. We were a recognized nation in the family of nations from the mid-1800s. And 1893 was when our independent, peaceful Hawaiian kingdom was overthrown without cause by just a handful of businessmen to protect their interest here in Hawaii. And their interest was very much tied to sugar. Sugar was an important industry during that time. Basically, they wanted, they wanted it all. And these, mainly the ones who overthrew our queen and imprisoned her in her own palace were the descendants of the missionaries who arrived in 1819. And they came here to Christianize us, and then their descendants actually were part of disenfranchising the Native people here in Hawaii. And that wrong that happened in 1893 was something that we have never recovered from. And the United States was a big part of the overthrow. They did land troops to protect these greedy businessmen who overthrew our queen and, and basically went after everyone loyal to her and imprisoned them, took everything they had. And thankfully, you know, we, our population went down to about 40,000 from a million. We are now recovering from that. Our population, I believe, is like 700,000 worldwide. So Kanaka Maoli, the Native people of Hawaii, are on the rise. And we are now calling for independence. We're calling for sovereignty, for the right to determine our own future and for our lands back and for control back of our own homeland. So that's basically where we are right now. And with the Red Hill issue, that is bringing to light more of what's happened in the past as well and the bad role that the U.S. military has played from 1893 on. And anything else you want to tell people about the queen, by the way? She was a beautiful person. She was a, an artist. She was a cultural, very cultural person. She wrote hundreds of songs. and. She was very gifted. You know, she was raised to rule. She was raised in Hawaii. She was born right here on Oahu, raised up. She married John Dominus. She never had children. She was the last reigning queen. And to her dying day, she always called for peace. When 1893, January 17th, which is the infamous day, that great injustice that happened to our people, when they dethroned her with the support of the U.S. military, from 1893 on, she always called for peace. She never, you know, our people wanted to fight back. We wanted to grab the guns and arm ourselves and fight back. She always said, no, we cannot afford to lose any more Hawaiian. We cannot afford to lose any more of our people. We were decimated with colonization, with the arrival of Westerners. So that's, she was a beautiful person. And she has a great book that she wrote. Yes, The Queen's Story by Hawaii's Queen. If you're here, you should read it. Before you come, actually, you should read it so you can understand what has happened and the great injustice that took place. And um, at 
the very end, while she was imprisoned in her own palace, she actually wrote a song called The Queen's Prayer, which asked for forgiveness for the sins of the men that did that to her. And that is just the way she was. And she really raised the standard for us to move forward as a people in a peaceful, nonviolent way. And that has been a hallmark of our people moving forward at Kapu Aloha. Thank you so much. And we're going to bring Danny and Mikey back in to talk about the organizing that they're doing. Sticking with the history theme a little bit, Danny, could you tell us about the traditional food system that Hawaii had that have been basically not destroyed, but that there have been attempts to destroy what they are and how you work on them today? Yeah, mahalo. So kind of as Heolani was speaking about, not only was Hawaii thriving before the time of contact, before capitalism and missionaries and all of these other factors had come in, but it was incredibly abundant. And so even if we just look at the island of Oahu and Pu'uloa specifically, which is tied so much to what we'll talk about today, yeah, Pu'uloa is often known around the world as Pearl Harbor, but it's this place of abundance. In that harbor alone, there were over 100 fish ponds, some specific to families, but that basically was the breadbasket for the Evo community for the entire central south side of the island. On our islands, we have what we call the Aupua'a system. So you have a Mokupuni, which is an island, and it's sectioned off into Moku or districts. And on Oahu, we have six Moku. And then within the Moku, you have Ahupua'a, which are often, uh, often go from the mountain down into the ocean and include the ocean resources. And so everything that folks needed were within your Ahupua'a. And there was this system where uh, folks would um, not barter or not necessarily trade, but it was so you would you would give and receive freely, and that's how folks got what they got what they needed. And so there was such abundance, and it was the understanding that what happened in the uplands, what happened in the Kula region, in the middle region where where um, farming and and things like that were done, and what happened in the ocean and included the ocean resources, all of that was connected. Yeah, there's this Olalono Eo that I think ties to Red Hill and some of the things that we'll get into later that it says, in Yeah, if the if the um, source of the water is dirty, that that dirty water or that lepo is gonna end up in the ocean. And so there is an understanding that whatever happened on any part of the island was all connected. We were one, um, we were one system. Um, and so as Helani said, at the time of contact, there were upwards of a million people completely self-sustaining. We're surrounded by 3,000 miles of water in all directions, and yet we were able to sustain our population um, completely internally. Um, and so a huge part of the disconnect that happened with colonization and with occupation had to do with the severing of that pilina between Kanaka and Aina, between people and land. Um, and it was a spiritual connection. It was a physical connection. Every Hawaiian today are the descendants are of about 7% of the population that survived. And so, so to think about that, um, and the effect that that had, the trauma that that had on us as people, on our bodies, the things that we still inherit, as well as on Aina, who lost the caretakers that were meant to to care for them. I think that is huge. And so over the last, you know, 40 years or so, there's been this resurgence, this cultural resurgence for sure, but this resurgence of understanding and reclaiming that connection between Kanaka and Aina. Yeah, there are thousands of names for rain. Yeah, in English, we say rain, or in English, we might say wind. In Hawaiian, there are thousands of names for each of those that are tied to specific places and specific characteristics. Like I grew up in Kareohe, 
off the top of my head, I can probably identify four. Like there's Mololani, there's Apuakia, there's all of these different rain names tied to that specific place. And so it's the development of an understanding of the subtleties of relationship to Aina and relationship to place and to land that allows us to be able to store it and, and to really bring life back. I think the, the growing of food is the product of that. And so one of the things that we do, and I'm grateful to be able to partner with Mahi'ai or farmers in the area who are working to restore lo'ikalo or, or irrigated flooded taro fields, which is a traditional style where you, you would flood a field and grow and plant taro there. But in the Eva community specifically, we had lo'ikalo, we had lopo'ia or fish ponds all within our area. And all of that is tied to militarization. Yeah, if we look at the overthrow, if we look at annexation, that's tied to Pu'ulo, it's tied to Pearl Harbor. Yeah, the reason that the overthrow happened was because after the Civil War had ended, the U.S. wanted to take care of American sugar farmers. Because before that, there was an embargo on sugar because the North and South were fighting. But after that, they wanted to take care of American sugar farmers. And so the U.S. was trying to pull out of a reciprocity treaty that it had between Hawaii and the United States. And so they said that if, in order to renew that treaty, they wanted access to Pu'ulo or to Pearl Harbor. And Kalakaua, who was Nene Un's older brother, was king at the time, said, no, there's no way that I would allow a foreign nation to have access to Pu'uloa and would forfeit all of the native access to that area for food. And the sugar planters that Heolani spoke to, super small group of folks who ironically called themselves the Hawaiian League, held him at gunpoint and forced him to sign a new constitution of 1887, the Bayonet Constitution, that stripped him of power, stripped Hawaiians of power, turned him into a puppet king and put all of the power into the cabinet which they controlled. And that's the constitution that Ni'okalani was forced to sign when she took office. And so four days before the overthrow, she tried to promulgate a new constitution. And that's the moment where everything shifted and they called the USS Boston to force the overthrow to happen. So it's all tied to empire building. It's all tied to power and, and greed, as we talked about. Anything else that you want to add, Heilani, about the history? I mean, you've done such both Good job. But. Yeah, there were a number of industries that came. Whaling was a big one before sugar. I believe that was the first one. But, you know, capitalism itself really contributed to the dismantling of the Hawaiian universe and world and was part of what Danny talked about, severing from our aina, you know, the commodification and making everything a transaction, you know, basically, really contributed to over-harvesting, exploitation, and brought us to this point here today where, you know, we're fighting basically for our future. Our island has been used and abused, exploited to a point where there will be a point where there will be no return at all. Mikey, is there anything you want to add about the history? And then I'm going to ask all of you about the organizing you've been doing. Yeah, just the, the treaty of reciprocity, which was not at all reciprocal, kind of precipitated a lot of the worst consequences of the U.S. military, specifically the U.S. Navy in Hawaii, but particularly with respect to Pu'uloa, uh, otherwise known as Pearl Harbor. And it was called Pearl Harbor because it was just, it was so momono with, with pearl oysters, just like everywhere. And you can still see kind of like the, the shells, but they're just carcasses now. But in a, a very short amount of time, the, the Navy managed to pollute that, that entire area so much that it went from being like 
the breadbasket of Oahu, or one of them, to one of the most contaminated sites on the planet. In fact, it's not just one Superfund site. It is a cluster of Superfund sites. And can you tell people what a Superfund site is in case people don't know? Yeah, it's it's kind of a strange title for something because it sounds very much like a um, a euphemism. It, it's 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 something that sounds very good, but it's actually uh, the worst possible thing. It is it is a it is an environmental site that is so contaminated that it, it has to have a special designation because it requires a a specific type of of very intense remediation uh, that that can't just be done. Um, you know, just letting nature take its course. Uh, and the large majority of DOD sites are, are sites of contamination of some sort. And, and a, a significant amount of Superfund sites are DOD sites. Which is Department of Defense. Yeah, Department of Defense. Yeah. Just to get a visual, Red Hill, otherwise known as Kapukaki, like that is also, it was constructed by the U.S. Navy around World War II. And just to get kind of like a, a picture in your head of Oahu, in the same way, the Ahuwa'a system where, where, you know, all of society and, and economies and, and, and a lot of culture was structured around living with the water. And, and by, by sharp contrast, like with the Navy, it's like the same, but from the mountain to the sea, contamination flows instead. And, and everything is kind of modeled around uh, the, the flow of fuel. So the, the, the fuel from Red Hill, it, it flows with the flow of gravity down their, their underground pipes to Pearl Harbor. And that's where all of the fuel is supposed to go. That's why Red Hill exists, because of all of the ships and planes of, of empire that are used to, you know, exert its, it, you know, the, the, the threat of force around the entire world. And Hawaii is the command center, too. Pearl Harbor is the command center. So this is the, you know, the head of the beast here, located here on our shores. Anything else you want to add about, any of you want to add about the history? And then if not, we're going to show a video that Mikey did about Red Hill. I'll just put a, a quick note just in terms of annexation. So I think it's also important to note that there is no treaty of annexation. What we see continuously in interactions between Hawaii and, uh, and America from, you know, 18, the late 1800s on is that it's motivated, right, by this idea of empire building. And so um, when the U.S. entered the Spanish-American War, um, at that point, the Treaty of Annexation that McKinley had proposed failed several times, um, and they were not able to pass it. And so one of the things that they did was they said, okay, well, it's wartime. We need a, a fueling station. And so they made an agreement with themselves, essentially. Yeah, there was a joint resolution, or the Newlands Resolution, a joint resolution with Congress saying that Hawaii will then be annexed, which is completely illegal. And so to this day, there is no treaty of annexation. Like no one can find it because it doesn't, it doesn't exist. And yet there's this facade that, that it's true. Um, and so from that time, uh, we've been, we've been operating under this illegal military occupation, uh, which is kind of the justification of what we're talking about when we, we talk about sovereignty, um, both political sovereignty, as well as uh, sovereignty with food and, and with our economy and, and all of those things. We have the strongest case for sovereignty. The United States has not followed its own laws, and let alone international law. Imagine that. Shifting gears a little bit, although it's all very related, let's look at a short video that Mikey did about Red Hill. 
Despite their arguments against it, the Navy is being ordered to drain their Red Hill fuel tanks. Within the last hour, a hearing officer sided with the Department of Health. On December 12th, Governor Ige issued an emergency order to drain the Red Hill fuel tanks after a series of leaks and thousands in military housing were sickened by jet fuel. Hearings officer David Day called the facility, quote, a ticking time bomb. The tanks are a, quote, metaphorical a ticking, ticking time, time bomb. bomb that poses a threat to human health and the environment. A metaphorical ticking time bomb just 100 feet above a major aquifer here on Oahu. This is probably going to give me a headache. water may extend beyond military families. Those Navy fuel tanks sit above a source that supplies water for more than 400,000 people here in Honolulu. So what is the status of Red Hill right now? And what else do people need to know about it? The fuel is still there, still sitting above our aquifer, still a threat to our future and uh, threat to life on this island on Oahu. For over a year, we have been organizing, raising our voices and demonstrating against Red Hill and calling for the immediate shutdown and defueling of this facility. And to this day, it has yet to happen. It has yet to materialize and Coming up against the U.S. military has been like a David and Goliath story. It's basically community people and affected family members who have been super vocal about the situation. And unfortunately, the state of Hawaii and our elected leaders here have been pretty much the doormat for the U.S. military. They have allowed this to happen there was a huge spill of 27,000 gallons back in 2014. And for eight years, our legislature and our elected leaders did nothing. They were told that this was inevitable, that there was in, it was inevitable that another spill would happen. And, and then what happened was 93,000 people on the Navy water distribution system that flows from Red Hill were poisoned. Children, families and most of them were military families, which, to all of our surprise, the military poisoned their own servicemen and women and their families, as well as other Oahu residents, civilian residents, and Kanaka Maui. And they're threatening our people now. So, yeah, I don't know if anybody else wants to go. I can jump in. Um, so, as Hialani said, they they began the unpacking. So, essentially, when the, the, the facility was put on pause, there was still fuel, about a million gallons of fuel in the in the pipes. So that was was strained, but there's still over a hundred million gallons sitting in the tanks. And the tanks themselves, they're 250 feet tall. Um, and they sit only a hundred feet above where we get our drinking water from. 
um, and they were constructed in the 1940s. So there are holes in the tanks. They've been leaking. Um, there have been documented leaks from the late 1940s. So essentially from when they were built, uh, they've, been, they've been leaking. Um, some of the statistics show that there's uh, about 5,000 gallons that leaks consecutive, like every year, just because they exist and they're, and they're old. Um, in terms of uh, the, the impacts, not only does this impact our drinking water, but, but on an island, this impacts everything that, that we do, essentially. Um, so if our drinking water is, is compromised, um, it will affect any sort of um, housing developments, because in order to get a permit, you need, you need, you know, water. We're going to, we are currently, I was at a neighborhood board meeting last night. They're draining, draining, uh, drilling new exploratory and testing wells in my community because the water from my house and the water in my community is now coming from somewhere else because the two wells that it drew from have been shut down. So three of our public drinking wells have been shut down as a result of of this this spill as a precaution, and so they're needing to to um, uh, drill emergency wells. Uh, we're in a, a water crisis and a water shortage right now um, because of that. As it said in the video, um, twenty percent of our island, where twenty percent of our island gets our water from, that well was shut down. Um, the Red Hill shaft, which is uh, the shaft that was pulling water and and sending it into homes of a lot of military families and civilian families that have still never been compensated, tested at 350 times whatever the legal limit is for petroleum last December. Um, it's appalling that there is a legal limit of petroleum that the government thinks is safe for someone to ingest, but whatever number that is, um, it tested at 350 times that, and that's the, that's the water that was being pushed, pumped into people's homes uh, last November and last December, that, that people are still um, you know, experiencing symptoms from it affects all cultural practices because every cultural practice that we have is tied to Aina. And on on an island, we have springs going throughout our valleys and springs going throughout um, throughout our Ahupua. And so those springs feed into streams that feed into the ocean. And so if we're talking about loikalo or farming or if we're talking about any sort of cultural connection to Aina, all of that is jeopardized. Um, and so I think people need to understand kind of the gravity, the gravity of the situation. Yes, we're talking about drinking water for specific people right now, but this has the potential to impact life itself on Oahu. Yeah, well said, both of y'all. Speaking to those stakes, they're nothing less than, than the future of life on Oahu. And just also thinking about how much has already been lost, right? Like the, the Navy has basically stolen the futures for a lot of, of you know, Kekiokaina, a lot of, of military families and their children, uh, children yet to be born. And a lot of these families, like the, the thousands of families who have been poisoned, like they're going to be dealing with the health repercussions of this for the rest of their lives. And they're already seeing like multiple health specialists, likely because this level of exposure to, you know, petroleum hydrocarbons, as far as we know, pretty carcinogenic substance that you definitely don't want to be ingesting, let alone even inhaling. It seems to like really lead to kind of immunocompromise, which is, you know, one of the worst things that you, you can experience a, as a patient of COVID, right? So what we're seeing is like a lot of folks with just myriad health effects that have extended way beyond their exposure to, to jet fuel, right? And, and it's going to require much more study 
to to be able to draw any you know concrete causal connections. But part of the problem is is like the Navy uh, physicians and officials have been saying, oh, you know, uh, we're operating off of the information we had at the time. We told you it was safe to drink because there were no studies saying that it didn't. Well, it's because no, not that many people, you know, have been exposed to jet fuel. These are the, these people are the test case, right? And and so that this is, um, I think, I, I mean, I, I'm seeing it in the comments a lot too. Like there's a lot of doomerism that goes around, you know, issues like this. And I, I think, you know, not, not, not for no reason. Like this is like, we live in very dark times against like, you know, the most genocidal, omnicidal polluter on the planet, the U.S. military, right? But I think there's a lot to be drawn from what has already been accomplished and what Oahu Water Protectors and what other community members have been able to build and are continuing to build, including bridges of solidarity and understanding that never would have been possible prior to this. A lot of military families are finally getting a view into what, you know, Kanakamali community have, have experienced under the, the people who, who have said that they're the world's chief protectors, you know, for well over a century. And and um, there's, there's also the fact that, like, it, in this really deep community organizing and, and uh, hardcore mobilizing and agitating on the local, national, and international scale, we were able to extract a, a, a pretty huge world historic W from from the Pentagon. And you don't come by those a lot. And I, I want to add something too. It's estimated about 80% of the residents on the Navy water distribution system still do not have access to clean drinking water or have to find alternative um, sources of clean drinking water. And so it's still an issue today because what has happened is the water that went through the distribution facility was contaminated and contaminated the pipes. They tried to flush out those pipes, but the contamination is still there. And there are still families that still are living in homes that are being given and fed contaminated water. They don't have access to clean drinking water. And that's why some of the work that these community organizers do, like shut down Red Hill Mutual Aid, which provides bottled water once a month to families in affected areas is so important. They're doing the work that the U.S. military is not. The U.S. military barely takes care of their own victims, let alone civilian victims. So it's been a year of all kinds of things happening and our residents, and including Kanaka Mali, struggling. And Hawaii, if any of you know anything about Hawaii, this is the most expensive place to live. So compound one thing upon another thing upon another thing. And life here isn't so easy. One of the other things that, that we're facing now, at, I think at this point, is um, looking at really the military-industrial complex. Yeah, and the way that our state government has received so much funds, so many funds, um, and, and just so many kickbacks from allowing these things to happen to our islands, yeah? So allowing places like Pohakuloa or Makua Valley or Kaho'olawe to be, to be completely desecrated and bombed, allowing places like Pu'uloa um, to be completely poisoned, as well as Kapukaki, which is Red Hill, what we're talking about today. Um, there's the, the, 
the state government is so complicit in that process. And I think for those of us who are, who are kind of on the front lines, we're seeing that now at this stage in the game when it comes to uh, the Department of Health and the, the wavering um, in terms of accountability. Um, the Navy can say from the front that the EPA and the Department of Health are the regulatory entities. And if they don't regulate and if they don't hold them accountable, then whatever the Navy does is completely legal. Um, and so I'll give you an example. We were recently at a Board of Water Supply meeting and the Board of Water Supply is, is the public um, water supplier for, for our island, um, but they're a private, they're a private entity that is, is contracted. Uh, their expectations for water quality is nowhere near the same as, as the expectations that the Navy has for its water system, which is the one that Helani is talking about, where 80% of the people on the Navy's water system don't trust the water. And is nowhere near the regulations for the Department of Health as well as the EPA. Yeah, they're holding, they're holding themselves, the Board of Water Supply is holding themselves to a higher standard. Um, and so they're asking the EPA and they're asking the Department of Health to raise their standards and the response was that there was no evidence to, to show that elevated levels of jet fuel or that elevated levels of, of um, AFFF or PFAS, which is this cancer-causing, essentially liquid cancer that never goes away, that bioaccumulates in your system, that could cause cancer for, for centuries, people that will be alive centuries from now, that there's no evidence. The research doesn't show that reducing the environmental action level is beneficial. And so they're refusing to do that. And so right now, those are some of the things that we're, we're battling up against is needing to engage the EPA, needing to engage the Department of Health and understanding that at least on the state level, those entities are both incredibly fearful and loyal to the military because of the amount of money that comes into Hawaii. And so that's a whole nother level of, of things that we're facing as well. Yeah. So about a month ago, just to give a little background, um, we had another spill of 1,300 gallons of PFAS, which is firefighting foam, spilt in um, at Red Hill. And uh, it was recorded, but they are not releasing the film. Uh, and, uh, you know, PFAS is a, is a whole nother ballgame when it comes to contamination. And uh, the EPA, uh, I believe, is coming out with uh, regulations. They're going to start um, monitoring PFAS um, and putting up regulations. But right now, it's it you know, uh, it, it is a for it's called the forever ever chemical uh, because it never leaves um, your body. Or it, I mean, it just kind of like Danny said, it bioaccumulates, and uh, you know that was another shocker because what else are they are they storing there? How much? I mean, everybody has such a close eye upon Red Hill now. I mean, of course we found out about this PFAS spill, but how many other PFAS spills were there that we weren't made aware of? And the way they handled it, um, their lack of transparency, they outright lie. They um, gaslighted the community and organizers and affected families. Uh, you know, they just started a Red Hill clinic, which is a joke. You know, families are having difficulty getting an appointment. And when they get there, they're not getting the help that they need. Uh, so it's all of this has been. At, at the, let me just say this a couple of things. The U.S. military has done this to so many other communities as well. This isn't the first time 
that they've poisoned their own um, servicemen and women, that they've poisoned um, civilians, that they've poisoned Native peoples. And um, most of the, the, the bases or the military facilities are located on stolen Hawaiian lands. And so their whole existence here in Hawaii is, is based upon um, their, I mean, they need to occupy, they need to, they need to oppress um, the native people of this land in order to even be here because it rightfully belongs to us, but they've stolen it, used it, abused it, polluted it. They are the biggest polluters in the world. Danny, I know you have to leave shortly. Anything else you want to make sure that we touch on while you're here? And thanks for being so generous with your time. Oh, no, mahalo for, for having me and for having us and for, for covering this topic. I think, you know, with the folks that are engaged on this, I think the one of the biggest things that people can do is continue to educate ourselves about the issue and continuing to educate each other about the issue. It's become abundantly clear that nothing will happen if if we don't do anything and if we don't say anything. Um, and so it's going to take engaging, you know, our congressional delegates. It's going to take, you know, engaging within the system as well as making a lot of noise outside of it and pressure from all ends. We shared some links to, you know, uh, petitions and things like that that folks can sign, ways that folks can support with resources, uh, like Helene said before, in terms of the movement, right, like we're needing to engage on the federal level, within the state governments, um, and then as, as Mikey them are doing with the shutdown uh, Red Hill uh, Mutual Aid Collective, you know, on the ground with families who literally are, are living off of bottled water right now, bathing, you know, brushing their teeth, all of that off of bottled water um, because the Navy is continuing to assert and the DOH is allowing them to do that continuing to assert that the water coming through their contaminated water system is clean. Um, and so if folks feel moved that in any capacity, then yeah, please feel free to give. And then yeah, Mahalo Mickey just, uh, just reminded me. So um, one of the things that I mentioned before in terms of potential cultural impacts is that the, the movement of fuel has the potential to go through springs and then affect our food systems and, and our, I know our land and waters in general. So one of the places that I helped to Malamar, helped to care for, is Ka'unohi, which is a lo'ikalo in the Ahupa of Kalawao in Eva. And one of the projections is that should the plume, right? So in the aquifer, there's a plume of fuel and whatever chemical additives that the Navy still has not disclosed that's moving throughout the aquifer. One of the projections shows that with a catastrophic leak, it shows the potential of that plume to move into Kalawal Springs, which are the springs that feed that Lo'ikalo. So we've been doing testing and whatnot to make sure that everything is safe, but that's that's really the stakes that we're talking about. Like I, I can look at a map that researchers have produced that shows me that the place that we're working to, to restore has the potential of fuel to come out of it based on their projections. And so if you care about wine culture, if you care about the rights of people to, to water, if you care about you know, um, human rights in, in any capacity. This is an issue that affects, I think, all communities. And, and we're seeing that in ways that folks have also come together. Great. Thank you. Uh, Zach Curtis asked, any mutual aid type groups? And literally, there's the Red Hill Mutual Aid, which Mikey works with. We'll put the links to those in the description. Yeah, shut down Red Hill Mutual Aid uh, on Instagram, on, on Twitter. 
Uh, you can find us also on on Venmo at, at, at Shutdown Red Hill Mutual Aid. And for over a year, we have been providing uh, hundreds of cases of water, uh, clean drinking water, to folks every month. And we are also organizing a community in Kapilina Beach Homes. And Kapilina Beach Homes was actually recently bought out by one of those large, you know, <laughs> amorphous investment firms, Blackstone Group. So they are pretending like the problem is solved, that the water is clean. In fact, they're explicitly telling people who are asking whether or not the Red Hill uh, contamination has been sorted out. They're saying, yes, it's fine. The water is testing clean. And just last, last month, a Kanaka mother uh, with a, a family of 12 who moved in recently, she saw me pictures just in mid-December of her, her baby, who's not even two years old, just covered in rashes. And it's, 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 it's heartbreaking and it's infuriating. Meanwhile, the landlords are telling this family and so many other families like, like hers that this water is not the cause of it. Her hair is falling out. Her, her daughter's hair is falling out. Her whole family has, has all sorts of gastrointestinal problems and, and headaches and, and brain fog, which is highly consistent with exposure to petroleum hydrocarbons in your water uh, through bathing or drinking. And th there wouldn't be so many people picking up this water from us every month if the water was clean. There wouldn't be people like just not even showing pictures. They're, they're just showing their bodies to us as they walk out of the car, showing that, they, that, 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 the, that their proof is their bodies, that, that this water is not safe, right? And it's because no matter how many millions of gallons of water the U.S. military flushed out of that system every single day, it's, it's sticky. Jet fuel is, is sticky. And, and it's sticking to the lining of, of the pipes, most likely, and, and, to, and to the fixtures. And unless they spend, you know, the hundreds of millions of dollars or potentially billions of dollars in infrastructure spending it would take to actually replace those pipes, it's, it's, it's not going to be clean. And that's, and that's also just assuming that the contamination plume you know, is it moving, right? And it still could be. And also just going back to, to the PFAS contamination, right? Helene had mentioned just like it's a, it's a whole other ballgame, right? Because when, when it comes to TPHD, what you measure, it, you know, the, those, those compounds in jet fuel that are poisonous, that's measured in the parts per billion. And, and they, were, they were ingesting in the hundreds of thousands of parts per billion, and that's terrible. But PFAS, what's considered within the realm of acceptable is nothing. And the EPA is actually dramatically scale down uh, what they consider to be a safe amount. And it's in the quadrillions, parts per quadrillion. So, I mean, imagine one drop of water in a swimming pool. That's like one part per billion. Imagine like 20 Olympic-sized swimming pools and one drop in there, that's a part per trillion. So that's how little PFAS is required to actually contaminate a water source. And like Heilani mentioned, you know, just like on the anniversary, the one-year anniversary of, of the Red Hill jet fuel spill, they spilled 1,300 gallons of AFFF concentrate. And this is concentrate. Just imagine orange juice, right? Like it's 3% military spec concentrate. You're supposed to match that with 97 parts water before you even make it firefighting foam. So that's spilled directly above our, our aquifer. And we just have to hope that it's somehow not going to follow the path that water has followed for thousands of years into the aquifer, right? So that, that's that's Kind of the, 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 the issue that we're dealing with right now is, is this ongoing contamination with jet fuel and then this bomb that has already dropped and is kind of like exploding in slow motion. And we just hope we're not in the blast radius. So yeah, plenty of work to be done. Yeah, I think like with, with this whole Red Hill catastrophe, when the fuel leaked into the water distribution system, the U.S. military initially lied about it. 
And then they provided water only for uh, military families, but not civilian families. And, um, and there's still families that still don't have access to clean water. And, you know, that's a real issue. And with PFAS, it was kind of like almost swept under the rug. I mean, at this point, they should provide an alternative source of clean drinking water for every person who may be affected by the contamination. Um, and they haven't done that, and they haven't um, owned up to all the health issues that they've caused, long-term health issues they've caused these families. And even from the 2014 spill, there are still families dealing with health issues from then. A lot of people are commenting in the comments, and this struck me too, about the similarities between this and Flint, Michigan. Yeah. Where they're also drinking, if they can afford it, bottled water. Yeah. And, and the insanity of this fake state of Hawaii is that in a bottom line, they'll be opening a wave pool, the largest in the world, that will be filled with over 2 million gallons of fresh water, drinking water, just a few hundred feet away from where families um, are still reeling from the effects of contaminated water. And that's the insanity that we have to deal with because greed rules here in Hawaii. Capitalism has been, um, you know, a bane of our existence, basically. I think, yeah, what, what Hilani just pointed to and what a lot of people in the comments are pointing to is, is yeah, this, the one thing that, like, there's so many different things about Flint, Michigan, right? It was technically, like, a government uh, uh, issue. But, I mean, it, it was also, it was in large part due to, to state capture by, by capital, capitalist interests of, of, of local government, right? And what connects these issues and what connects all water issues around the planet, it is, it is capitalism. And, and, and the way that the flow of capital under this capitalist system has basically become more important to the ruling class than the flow of water. And because like the flow of water, which is life itself, runs in opposition to capital flow, they will prioritize capital every single time. And that's why this, this ruthless, you know, like world-ending system has, has to be overthrown and, and replaced and restored with, with indigenous lifeways, with land return, you know, with, with water return. And this, this, this speaks to the biggest lie of U.S. empire. Like, we, we've heard a lot about, like, the many lies Danny and Hialani uh, went through a lot of them. Like, the lie of the treaty, the existence of a treaty of annexation, right? The myriad lies that Hialani pointed to uh, that the Navy has told their own service people, as well as the general public, as well as the Native Hawaiian community, throughout this crisis, even precipitating this crisis when everyone was warning them that Red Hill was a disaster waiting to happen. The biggest lie on top of all of this is that the U.S. military keeps us safe. And I think Red Hill and all of the crisis that, that connects with it is all the evidence you need to know that the opposite is true, that, that we, in fact, keep us safe, that, that, that water keeps us safe, and that none of the boogeyman that they have cast uh, for us to hate at any given moment, from Russia to China to the DPRK to Cuba to Iran, none of them have even threatened to do what the U.S. military has already done within the past two years to this island. And, and I think that's uh, something important uh, for those who are still kind of on the fence about whether or not to consider themselves a U.S. patriot, you know, to, 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 to really consider, like, who is actually keeping us safe and who is actually putting us in danger.
I want to go to the term that one of our leaders in the Wahoo Water Protectors uses a lot, which is we're, you know, we're, we're pr- trying to protect what we love. Basically, this has been a movement of love, of life. We love life and this is about our future, but it more so it's about, and what's connecting us, all of us from different backgrounds. I never thought I would organize with military families as well as, um, you know, settlers I've never met um, because I've been in the, the Hawaiian sovereignty movement for so many years. Uh, what connects us is love. And this has been a movement of that, just that, because there's no way other to describe it. You know, we're not doing it for anything but to protect life and to protect those that we love. Thank you so much. Well, um, I know you have to go, Danny. So thank you for joining. I had another question for you, Helani, if you have time. Sure. Oiho, thank you so much. Bye, Danny. Bye, Danny. Well, Danny. Can you talk about what is going to be happening on January 17th? Yeah. So, uh, and just, just a week away, uh, we uh, are going to be commemorating the illegal overthrow of the Hawaiian monarchy when it, it was the, it was, it's a day of infamy that has um, affected us uh, from gen- through the generations. Uh, growing up here in Hawaii, as a Kanaka Maori Wahine, as a woman, uh, in the public school education system that is um, is controlled by this fake state of Hawaii, uh, I never learned the true history of my people. In fact, I was taught that my ancestors were savages who killed their own children, um, who sacrificed uh, who who sacrificed their own people and were oppressive to their own people, and that we should be grateful and happy to be under the U.S. um, control. Um, And it wasn't until um, my later years that I find out when I went to, actually, I had to learn it in college, uh, was a student of Dr. Hananiki Trask, uh, very grateful to have been in her presence. And it was there that I learned the true history of, of our people. And it's been like that for many in my generation that we are, we are now just, um, in, the, in the past couple decades, just awakened to the reality and the truth of our past. And what the onipa'a, which, uh, which is what we call it, onipa'a in Hawaiian means to stand fast. It was our queen, our last queen's model. And uh, what the onipa'a means to us is, um, is, is everything, basically. It's, it's the reason why we are in the situation we are now, why we have um, low educational attainment, why 40% of the houseless in Hawaii are Kanaka Maui, why we die from diseases that are controllable, why um, many of us are living in poverty and paycheck to paycheck, why our communities are the poorest and have the worst schools, um, it explains everything. It explains the reality of the situation that we live now. Um, we were told we were poor and nobody cared for us, but actually we're actually, we're very rich. Um, most of this land in Hawaii is our land. It's all stolen. And every piece of land in Hawaii is very valuable real estate. So commemorating January 17th, is ensuring that not just us, but our future generations will never forget 
the crime that was committed against our people. Um, and we still feel the effects of the overthrow. The overthrow happened to the native people of this land. And we are 130 years after the fact. We, we, we still have yet a long way to go to, to get to get back what was what's rightfully ours, which is the land, two million acres of it, um, our clean water and control over our own destiny and um, our culture and have a say in that. You know, we're right now in Hawaii, we're overwhelmed uh, with the two biggest industries in Hawaii is military, the military industrial complex and tourism, the two worst industries that we could anybody could ever have, very exploitive, um, and it's unsustainable. And you will be marching to the palace? Yes. So we are marching. We have almost 20 schools coming. Thousands of children will be there. Um, it's on a Tuesday. So that's January 17th. It's the 130th year since the overthrow. We're marching from Mauna Ala, uh, Royal Mausoleum, where our, our last queen is buried down to Iolani Palace, and there we will have music, uh, we will have speeches, we will have educational booths, and it's really a great time to come together. And, it, you know, Hawaiians, Kanaka Maoli, are very unified in many ways, culturally. It's just a great way to galvanize our community and keep the movement moving forward. Since we want to end on a happy note, I'm going to Borrow a line from Amy Goodman, but what gives you hope? Do you want to go first, Blanky? I got to think. There's plenty. So I have this thing in my living room that I actually uh, I keep it very visible so I can see it every day because I need it. <laughs> um, because, you know, there's so many bad things going on. Right? I mean, like PFAS alone, right? They, they just recently discovered that PFAS is in detectable levels in all rainwater everywhere on the planet. Right. And that's terrifying. Right. And, and, and there's so many other terrifying things like that, as particularly related to climate change through all of the systemic oppression, all oppressed people's face around the world. And it's kind of hard to think that we alone uh, have anything to do with it or just an outlook <laughs> alone. Well, it definitely won't do anything about it. Right. But it's, um, it's something I learned from um, Miriam Kaba. Uh, hope is a discipline. And I, it, to me, it means that it's it's not just an attitude or an outlook, right? You don't just cross your fingers and hope things get better, uh, or you just you you know you just have a positive, uh, optimistic view of things, no matter how bad things get. It's 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 the idea that that just like like politics or love, uh, or hope is something you have to do. It's a verb. It's something that you have to practice every single day, and regardless of you know all of the existing material reality around you. And all the people possibly around you saying that better things and a better world is impossible. Um, the only way that things have ever gotten better in in any area is by people who just kept doing the work and kept building power and building community and fighting for things that were at the time impossible until they became possible with action, with organizing, and with building power. And I think something to be really hopeful for is that through all of this terrible uh, tragedy. We have, our community has been able to learn how to be in community with each other 
in ways that we never would have thought possible. And, and we've been able to, to discover the power that we have as a community, as an organized community, in ways that we never would have thought possible. And I think we've been able to show that power to the greatest power on the planet, to the most oppressive power on the planet, to the US military, in ways that I'm sure they, in this modern age, never would have thought possible. And as we continue to build across uh, not just our local communities uh, between indigenous people and military families and settlers, but also on the international level uh, with, with, with indigenous communities on Turtle Island and all over the world, and also with the international left and oppressed people all over the world, that power is only going to increase. Uh, and, and we're going to start to see more and more tears in that paper tiger. And that's what I'm hopeful for. You know, with this movement, this is, you know, I've been in the movement for a few decades now, and this movement was different from any other. For many years, you know, part of the way we operated as Kalawhi Hawaii was to engage and work within the system as well. Uh, what this movement has taught me is the value of working outside of the system and the power in numbers and people. Um you know, we, we are so many times told and, and made to believe that, um, you know, we're, you know, not to hope or not that we're powerless, you know, um, as people, as advocates in the community. And that is so not true. And that's what this movement has taught me. We have been more effective um, than our elected politicians in making the U.S. military, um, making the U.S. military actually admit that yes, they have to shut down Red Hill, um, in a in a matter of months, uh, the Department of Defense Secretary, you know, made the announcement. I think it was in March 2022 that the U.S. military will shut down uh, the U.S. naval facility at Red Hill, and to me, that is a huge accomplishment to get them to that point. And it all, all of it was community organizing. They didn't pass the bill to, to make the U.S. military do it. Um, you didn't see any of our elected leaders um, organizing to push the Department of Defense to do it. It was community. It was community advocates like Danny and Mikey and uh, Hanaloa and Wayne and Gina and Nani. I mean, it was... There's so many of us and, you know, you feel, I, I, I think for me going forward and what I would tell other advocates is don't let them make you feel like you do not have power. You do. Your voice is very powerful, especially when it is aligned with other community voices. And I think that is one of the most important lessons I've learned this year. And that gives me hope. Thanks again for listening to The Katie Helper Show. If you like the show, please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash The Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash The Katie Helper Show. Please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Helper. Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman. And our theme song is by the band Cordova. See you next time.